0: Hello, I'm Kyle Johnson, and this is What Are You Reading?, a podcast devoted to books and the perspectives of their readers. In the last 10 years of his life, the writer Frank Norris had the idea of writing a series of epics about certain tragedies that happened in California at the turn into the 20th century. Many of the events he used for inspiration occurred in the name of progress, and today's book is no exception. It tells the story of when the railroad companies started building lines in Southern California and the land disputes that followed. The novel is now considered a classic, and perhaps even a precursor to Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. I'll talk to my guest today about all of these topics and more. So please enjoy.
1: My name is Matt Butler. I live in New York City. I am a musician, and I also work as a bookseller at 192 Books on 10th Avenue. So, Matt, what are you reading? I'm currently reading The Octopus by Frank Norris. Could you just give kind of an overview of the book? I mean, what should people know about The Octopus? It's important to know it's written in 1901. That's when it came out. And it's a story, I would say, sort of a classic Kind of muckraking novel. It's set in California, and it's the story of the conflict between the ever-expanding railroad and the interests of the ever-expanding railroad uh, with wheat ranchers that are settled in California on land owned by the railroad, but that they feel, you know, that they have a real sort of uh, spiritual claim to, you know, and as well as a, a I guess, a legal one as well, because they've worked on this land for many, many years. Frank Norris had this idea of writing an epic trilogy about wheat. He called it the Trilogy of the Wheat. This is the first book of his planned trilogy. He wrote the second one uh, and unfortunately passed away before he could write the third. But the idea of this this trilogy of the wheat sort of hooked me right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And a, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned this word muckraking. Yeah. Can you define what that is? Sort of a type of investigative journalism is meant to expose some form of corruption. I think it was really popular with the industrial revolution. It was the idea that writers would immerse themselves in certain environments or in certain industries. Like Frank Norris was a guy from New York actually who moved out to California and worked on ranches, sort of in order to get immersed in the culture of it and. and and understand the workings of a ranch so that he could write about it. But really it's like people who want to expose corruption in, in various industries or within government.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, in the context of the plot of the book, what is that political agenda in this case? Well, th- this, I think it's this real battle between ever encroaching modernity and materialism and and, and capitalism and sort of the death of an older set of values. I mean, it's like definitely not a new theme. There is sort of this Iliadic quality to what's happening between the ranchers and the railroad, you know, where there's like sort of the death of this this older heroic set of virtues in favor of a more uh, mercenary set of values. You know, one of a few climactic scenes at the end where this character Presley, who is kind of as close to like probably the alter ego you know, of Norris himself within the novel. He's like, you know, he's a poet and he sort of observes this conflict. But there's a moment where somehow Presley finds himself in the office of the, you know, the railroad magnate. this magnate, this character Shelgrim. And Shelgrim gives him this speech, you know, that like it really isn't his or anyone else's fault. He says, quote, the railroad builds itself just the way the wheat grows on its own. There's no one person to blame. It's just simply this evil world of the indifference of nature and sort of the laws of supply and demand. And and so there's a real kind of like existential challenge sort of thrown down at the end where the sort of black and white industry is bad and the farmers are good. It really gets kind of thrown out. The book that I relate this to in a certain way is The Grapes of Wrath you know i feel like john steinbeck like had to have been familiar with this book in certain ways but the conflict within the grapes of wrath seems to me to be clear the grapes of wrath is, is probably like a much more like a masterwork than than the octopus in a lot of ways and it's pro- it's i would also say the grapes of wrath is like one of my top 5 favorite books This kind of main character is a poet.
0: And I found a passage that speaks to that. This character who is the poet, he says, The great poem of the West. It's that which I want to write. Oh, to put it all into hexameters, strike the great iron note, sing the vast, terrible song, the song of the people, the forerunners of empire. And then he says, I was born too late. Uh, to get back to that first clear-eyed view of things, to see as Homer saw, as Beowulf saw, as the Nibelungen poet saw. The life is here, the same as then. The poem is here, my west is here. The primeval epic life is here, here under our hands, in the desert, in the mountain, on the ranch, all over here from Winnipeg to Guadalupe. It is the man who is lacking, the poet. We have all been educated away from it. We are out of touch. We are out of tune. So could you speak a little bit more to how this character is kind of the stand-in for Frank Norris himself? Or, you know, in those words that I just read, did you find yourself maybe agreeing with with anything that he said?
1: I I got like little shivers listening to that just because I I love Presley's Ramblings about poetry, and I, you know, obviously hexameter. He's like referring to, you know, the the Odyssey or the Iliad or Homer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there's a couple of amazing moments where sometimes I feel like Norris goes back to the idea of like being cast out of the Garden of Eden. You know, there's like this this fall or loss of innocence. You know that 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 is sort of comprised in that in that same sentiment. This idea, of, you know, we're we're born too late. We're out of touch with nature. We're out of touch with our own fundamental natures and so forth but you know almost every time where i think he he seems sort of like i said naive or one-dimensional then there's another passage that sort of follows up shortly after that that reflects a a really amazing degree of like insightfulness and self-awareness on norris's part presley the poet is sort of constantly lamenting he can't write this song of the west and that if only the ranchers and the railroad folk would just sort of like Get out of the way. Like he doesn't want to hear anything about wheat prices. He doesn't want to hear anything about what it costs to ship, you know, wheat from Bonneville to Guadalupe, and he doesn't want to hear about the, you know, the acreage prices being jacked up by the railroad and sort of anything that has to do with the details of the business disputes. But at one point, you know, it, it's made clear to him by a character named Cedarquist that like what he's actually witnessing is in fact you know, the poem, like he's like, here's your conflict, like here is sort of irresistible force, you know, the octopus, the tentacles of the railroad, you know, reaching through the land and choking off the life of all of these sort of like people of the land. Presley kind of, you know, and, and eventually sort of gets wind of that and sort of realizes that at that moment, he's actually like observing this in, in, incredible moment of this incredible conflict or sort of the the passing of one era into another, which, which, is sort of what all of Homeric poems are about, you know, the idea like the these elegies for for a, you know a bygone time. Similarly, one of the passages that I marked down, Presley kind of like has a foil throughout the book with another character named Vanamee, who is constantly referred to as more of a poet than Presley, even though Vanamee doesn't actually write, but he's sort of this ascetic mystic character that sort of lives out in the wastelands and periodically comes back and forth into civilization. There's a moment where Presley is debating what to do with his poem, The Toilers. Presley ends up being sort of challenged with this idea that after he has some success with his poem, he gets sort of questioned by Vanamy as to whether or not he actually is sincere in his concern for the people. Or whether he's still just more concerned with his own artistic success, which, um, you know, to me is probably a, a real reflection of, a, of like a concern that Frank Norris probably had himself. Like, I, I, I kind of feel like he was you know working out a lot of his own guilt and issues and an internal conflict about this. But so Vanamee is telling him, I tell you that as such a poem as this of yours called as it is, the toilers must be read by the toilers. It must be common. It must be vulgarized. You must not stand upon your dignity with the people if you are to reach them." And then Presley says, I can't get rid of the idea that it would be throwing my poem away. The great magazines give me such a background, give me such height, because he he wants to publish it in these really fancy magazines. And then Vanamee goes on to say, gives you such height, gives you such background. Is it yourself you think of? You helper of the helpless, is that your sincerity? You must sink yourself. You must forget yourself and your own desire of fame and of admitted success. It is your poem, your message that must prevail, not you who wrote it. You preach a doctrine of of abnegation, of self-obliteration, and you sign your name to your words as high on the tablets as you can reach so that all the world may see, not the poem, but the poet. So, you know, I, I know we began a while back on this, uh, quote that you had mentioned about the Song of the West, but this is sort of the evolution of, of the Song of the West. To
0: me, it, what you read is wrestling with what it means to be an authentic creator, authentic to oneself and also authentic in this case as an American poet. I mean, do you ever think about some of those themes when you go to write songs or perform them that you want to get kind of the message across and not necessarily
1: yourself? Well, this is particular passage sort of like hit me very hard because I have conflicts of a similar nature with with with, with my own work. I perform uh, in jails and in prisons and I did that for a very long time prior to the pandemic where I just kind of traveled the country uh, performing in jails and in prisons. Recently I, I, I decided to write a play about it i wrote a one-man show and and that's when i decided to create a tiktok account was because i wanted to be able to promote the show i was doing and started a small nonprofit organization it's called art that serves and i work very hard to try to bring arts programming into correction facilities and uh you know and also to sort of raise awareness about that kind of work but i i you know i often like have the same like experience I think is, is this where I, I question myself all the time as to whether or not my motives you know are are selfish and self-seeking and if I'm exploiting these these this you know population of people motivations selfish and selfless motivations can uh, can exist simultaneously you know and sometimes one eggs on the other if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm.
1: that makes sense thanks for sharing that. I want
0: to turn to the last paragraph of the book. Falseness dies. Injustice, oppression, in the end of everything fade and vanish away. Greed, cruelty, selfishness, and inhumanity are short lived. The individual suffers, but the race goes on. Annixter dies, but in a far distant corner of the world, a thousand lives are saved. The larger view always discovers the truth that will, in the end, prevail, and all things surely, inevitably, resistlessly work together for good. The end. I hope that what I say doesn't influence how you would feel about that final paragraph, but for me personally, I find it a bit delusional. I don't think that that last paragraph has aged well. Or at least we wouldn't read that the same way. I don't think we have that kind of
1: optimism today. His ambition for this book was so big, especially when you read it. I mean the amount of themes he sort of touches on and the sort of the sprawling characteristic of it. You know, I, I don't know if he knew how to end it, man. It sounds like someone <laughs> you know, it sounds like someone who's kind of reaching for something. And I think that, you know, one of the themes that he touches on you know the primary symbol, if you could say, throughout the book is is the wheat itself. Mm. You know, which is something that you know has a lot of scriptural and biblical reference and connotation. But you know, I think that in his own assessment of it, it actually has a little bit more of like a animistic quality. Like I, this book doesn't read anywhere near as you know Christian allegorical as as something like you know Steinbeck or Grapes of Wrath to me, but. Mm. I do think that it goes back to this idea that everything is cyclical. The seed of the weed has to die in order for the the plant to grow. And I think that he was really trying to put a bow on it in a way that I don't think he was necessarily able, like philosophically, to put a bow on it. Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I mean, it it has a sense of closure that the Grapes of Wrath, I don't think, has has closure. What do you think, the end of the Grapes of
1: Wrath? I mean, the ending of The Grapes of Wrath is like one of the most like startling and shocking and kind of like kicker endings ever, you know? And in a way there's like a similarity in that Rosa Sharon is breastfeeding this, this dying man. So in, in some level there, there is some sort of sense of like this inst- unstoppable life force, you know, which is similar to that of, of the wheat in The Octopus. Well, at
0: the same time, though, I mean, why is The Octopus important? Because, I mean, based on who is still publishing this book, seems like it's it's a classic alongside, you know, Steinbeck.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's it's sort of an overlooked link in the chain as far as, like, maybe what, what could be, like, an American literary canon. I mean, I, you think about, like, Melville and Poe and Hawthorne, you know, Steinbeck put the Grapes of Wrath out, and I think it was like 1939. And so Frank Norris at 1901 is kind of in this limbo f- phase between those two. But I would see, like I said, I, I, I imagine that Steinbeck like had to be familiar with Frank Norris. When I think about the great American novel, like when I talked to my coworker, the manager uh, at the store, my friend Evan, you know, and I asked him the other day well, what he considers, you know, Criteria for the great American novel, and one of the things that he includes is like a manic ambitiousness. Hmm. This book absolutely has that. What this book, to me, is indicative of is like a tremendous amount of literary synthesis. How he 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 absorbed and integrated his influences up to the point of him writing this, to me, is very apparent in the text itself. You know that there's this sort of recombinant ability that he had of of being able to read hugo and read zola and and Mm. sort of make an american version of that this this homeric epic of the west just that he felt called to that makes me kind of love him (laughs) and it's something that in 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 my own way feel sort of feel i have my own sense of a calling towards that and so i feel kind of kindred with with him and some of his aspiration And I I like to think about the sense of awe and wonder that it would require in a a, a person to want to attempt a novel of this kind and a trilogy of this kind, and his his scope of, of just sort of how he saw the world and nature
0: Today's guest was Matt Butler, whose information is linked in the show notes, and who is currently reading The Octopus by Frank Norris. If you'd like to purchase a copy of this book and support local bookstores and this podcast, please find a bookshop.org link in the show notes of this episode. The music used on What Are You Reading is from the album Wallflower by percussionist Julian Loida. If you like what you heard, please consider following and leaving us a good rating and review, as this helps the show reach interested listeners. If you have a title or genre you'd like represented on the show, please find my email address in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.